So I entitled this message, Is Jesus the Savior That You Expected? Um, so a few years back, I don't remember how many, because they just mold into one. There was a Christmas time, and all of us siblings decided to give one another gifts, uh, but not just things. We decided to give each other something to do. Like Angie and I would used to buy Sonic's tickets, like we would buy a seven-game package or whatever they used to sell, and then just give them to all of my brothers and sisters. And it was like Christmas shopping done in one transaction. It was beautiful. Um, but uh, this Christmas, we opened our gift, and I let Angie do it, you know, because I'm horrible at, like, pretending, like, I really like it or, like, I'm super surprised. And uh, it was a food tour of Pike Place Market. So being this sort of selfish jerk that I am and and I'm not a foodie kind of person I was like oh cool you know and I I was like oh a food tour like I'm just you know some people just love food and trying it out you know for me it's like if I go out, out to eat and pay for food like I want to bet on a winner right like I want to know which horse is going to win this race I'm not going to bet on a long shot. Like, I don't want to spend money on something like maybe I'll like it because I'll just be like, Duh, I should have had what I knew that I liked, you know. So I'm, I'm just, it's just the, the refined sort of white trash sensibilities that I've grown up with. <laughs> and uh, so anyways, as the, the time of this food tour approaches, I, I was just dreading it. You know, like my expectations were very low for this thing. It was like, Ugh, we got to go on a food tour. And there has to be other people, part of it, like watching us eat the weird food that we're going to have to eat. Like I'm just, you know, a lot of hype in my mind about what is going to happen at this food tour. So we show up to the food tour. Nobody else showed up that day. Uh, so it's just Angie and I. And the guide was sort of like, crap, you know. Do you still want to do it? And we're like, uh, I'm like, no. And Angie's like, yeah, of course we do, you know. <laughs> I'm like, okay. So we go through the food tour. And I would recommend it to anyone, like, even if you're not a foodie, like, it was awesome. Like, my expectations for this thing were totally just blown away. Like, I expected to have to try just, like, raunchy stuff or who knows, you know. And they just took us to all this awesome, incredible food, learned about tea. We learned about crumpets, you know, like, you name it. They got all kinds of stuff down in there. Tacos, fish, burgers. Like, it was, it was great, the, the, the one final part, like, the, I had reservations throughout, you know, but it just was pretty awesome. Then we got to the truffle shop, you know, and every shop we went into, it's like, okay, they were ready for us. They had a little plate. They're like, here you go, you know, try our food. So we try the food, you know. So we walk into the truffle shop. If you don't know what truffles are, they're like these magic mushrooms that only pigs can find underneath trees, and they're, they're really valuable. And uh, so they, they lift up this jar of, like, dirt balls, and they're like, here's the truffles. So they... they point it towards us so it's a food tour right so Angie's like all right so she reaches in to grab the truffle like I'm like oh great we're gonna have to eat these dirt clods right and uh so she reaches in the truffle jar and the lady goes we do not touch the truffles (laughs) just smell smell it and I'm like oh thank you Jesus I don't have to eat one of those things uh so that was like the close call you know but uh so we got through this thing and it was like that was awesome and my expectations, my sort of mindset was like, this is going to be horrible. Like, I don't like anything. I'm just, you know, can I just have like a Dick's burger and just follow you around the whole time? Like, I just, I don't like that kind of stuff. But it, it totally blew me away. 
And I think that's really cool when you, you expect something to sort of be one way and then it just isn't, but it, it sort of exceeds or even supersedes the expectations that you had for that thing. And this is, this is kind of what is going to happen in this passage and, and in the next couple weeks as we look at Jesus at the Feast of Tabernacles. And the, the question is about your expectations. Jesus, the question is, what do you expect of Jesus? Is Jesus the Savior that you've expected? And we find out in this, in this story there are a lot of expectations at this time. The Feast of Tabernacles is the last celebration in the Jewish calendar of feasts. It happens on the, the end of the year, so to speak, and it's the last harvest. It's the harvest of fruit and grapes. So it's wine, right? It's the wine festival. Like This is the festival according to Jewish history, this is the one you want to be at. This is like the Super Bowl of Jewish festivals. This is the one everybody gets really hyped for. And during this time, we know that there are a lot of expectations that God is doing something at this time in Jewish history. Because we we see it throughout the New Testament. We see it in, in some Jewish writings. There's an expectation. John the Baptist shows up and everybody's going out to this weird guy who's baptizing people. And God seems to be moving again in the land of Israel. And they're occupied by the Romans. They're, they're living in an oppressive state. And they're wanting to be free of this. They're wanting to return to the, to the golden era of, of the Jewish people ruling the world. And, and their expectations are on the rise. So there's like a hype that's gathering around this time. And this is the, this Feast of Tabernacles and this, this sort of general buzz in, the, in their society is something that we have to understand as we go into these conversations in John 7 and 8 because everything that Jesus does and says in this time is informed by what's going on in this, in this, on the background here because of the Feast of Tabernacles. So the Feast of Tabernacles is a, is a time where they use, tabernacle means tent, okay? So we just call it like the Feast of Tents or Dome, dome Tent Festival. I don't know what you call it. But their tents were, uh, they had an outline of how you had to build them with sticks and, and leaves. And it was to remind them of when God delivered them from Exodus and they lived in the wilderness and they lived in, in tabernacles. And it's to remind them that God tabernacled with them and lived among them. He lived in a tent right in the middle of their camp, his, his presence. And so this is, a, this is a messianic festival too because as the year progresses, they get through the, the Feast of Trumpets. And it's, it's announcing that you need to examine yourself because the Day of Atonement is coming. And then they go through the Day of Atonement. It's called Yom Kippur. And this is the day when, when uh, all of the sins of Israel are atoned for by this, the sacrificial lamb. And then they go into the feast, the feast of Tabernacles, which is like a celebration that God has washed away our sins, in a sense. And he's given us this great harvest. And so during this time, this would be the time in their mind when the Messiah would show up in their society. So this is the, these are the conversations that are happening. This is what's informing what's going on as Jesus enters into this festival. So first of all, um, I have sort of three uh, points here. Uh, is Jesus the Savior you expected? Uh, my first point is we expect a Savior to prove himself by obeying us, but he obeys the Father. Number two is we expect a Savior to prove himself by telling us what we like to hear. But he tells us what we need to hear. And lastly, Jesus proves himself by superseding or taking place of our expectations. So point number one. We expect a Savior to prove himself by obeying us, but he obeys the Father. 
So the messianic expectations of this time are swirling around in, in his, brother, his brother's heads. And I don't see his brothers as a bunch of jerks that are mocking him at this point. It says they didn't believe him. It doesn't say that they were sneering at him. And these questions are actually make total sense for them if Jesus is the Messiah. Like everything they say from the, their perspective, not taking into account God's plan, makes perfect sense. This is the time. If you're the Messiah, this is the Feast of Booths. Everybody, this is also people travel in from all over. It's an international festival. They come to Jerusalem. So they're living in tents. There's tents just filling the city on rooftops around the city. It's like a huge, huge party that's going on with people from all over the world. So this would be the time for the Messiah to raise up his army, okay? And some of the expectations around the Messiah based on Old Testament prophecy were that the Messiah would be a great political leader descended from the king of David, from King David. He would be referred to as son of David. He will be well-versed in Jewish law and observant of the Jewish law, observant of its commandments. He'll be a charismatic leader, inspiring others to follow his example. And he'll be a great military leader who will win battles for Israel. And he will be a great judge who makes righteous decisions. So what's he going to do? This is in in, in his brother's mind. Before the time of the Messiah, there's going to be war and suffering according to Ezekiel. The Messiah will bring about political and spiritual redemption of the Jewish people by bringing us back to Israel and restoring Jerusalem. This is from Isaiah 11, Jeremiah 23. He'll establish a government in Israel that will be the center of all world government for both the Jews and Gentiles. He'll rebuild the temple and reestablish its worship and he'll, re- he'll restore the religious court system of Israel and establish Jewish law <clears throat> as the law of the land. So please understand, the Jewish people at this time were living under Roman occupation, okay? It's like the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, right? We'll let you live and you obey, pay us taxes or we'll utterly destroy you and scrape the land of any evidence that you ever existed. There was a time in Rome of a slave, result where they, slave revolt where they crucified 6,000 people and they lined them all along the road. There were 6,000 people on crosses all along the road. Like, Rome was not a nice place. You get along or you get destroyed. And, and the Roman oppression was very heavy on the Jewish people because imagine yourself walking down the street in Renton and the, or some Roman guy, a Roman guard walks by, right? All his Roman gear. And he's, he, he just went shopping and he's carrying his bags and he's tired and you're headed home from work and you're tired. You're going the opposite way. He just stops you. And he says, Micah, carry these bags for me back to my house. By law, you have to carry those bags for him for a mile. You have to walk with him a mile. Regardless of what you're doing, you could be on your way to the hospital when he says, carry those for me. You just got to carry them. This is Roman law. Like, this is what the Romans get to do to you, right? It's, that's very oppressive. That's just one example of what the Israelites were living under. So they desired for freedom from this, this political oppression, this very real oppressive government. So this is the time. They, they feel like maybe the Messiah is going to come. He's going to be a great political leader. He's going to be charismatic. He's going to attract all these people to himself. So his brothers are saying, this just makes sense, Jesus. Go, go down to the festival, man. Like everybody's there. This is when you get to show your miracles. This is when you get to do your thing. And Jesus has this, this interesting answer. He says, it's not my time. My time has not come. He uses a special word for time. It means opportune time. It means the, the spe- a specific point in time, not just the passing of time. 
we have one word for time, right? I don't have time, or this is the right time. We have to sort of couch it in terms, but in, in Greek, it's chronos and kairos. Chronos, like chronology, uh, chronometer, like a clock. Chronos just means the passing of time. Kairos means like a point in time. That's an opportunity. This is what Jesus says. This is not my time. I'm not going up. You guys go up. Any time is your time. You guys can go up. So why, why is Jesus saying this? I see Jesus, I see sort of two things happening here. <clears throat> One of them is total speculation on my part. Uh, and it's related to eschatology. But I think that Jesus, the feast, the feast cycle of Israel is sort of a timeline of, of God's story in an interesting way. And it's a really cool study if you ever want to study how the feasts of Israel relate to what Jesus is accomplishing. There's seven feasts. Four of them happened in the beginning of the year and three of them happened at the end of the year. And if we look at history, it seems like four of those feasts have been fulfilled in Christ and what he's already accomplished. And there's three that haven't. The Feast of Trumpets, uh, the Day of Atonement, and <coughs> the Feast of Tabernacles. So the Feast of Tabernacles would be sort of the last thing when God comes back and restores all Israel and everybody's just hanging out, partying. And, uh, <coughs> excuse me, I feel like Jesus, in one sense, because in John, Jesus is always saying stuff that makes sense on a couple different levels. Because he's talking to us. He knows that we're going to be here listening to his word, and he's talking to the people around him. So he says, it's not my time. Like, this Feast of Tabernacles is not mine. Mine's coming someday. That's the one for me. Because he doesn't say it's not my hour. <clears throat> Throughout John, he says, this is, my hour has not yet come. That, he's referring to the cross when he says hour. It's very clear. My hour has not yet come. Here he says, it's not my time. But I, I think he, he's saying like, I think he's saying that my, my Feast of Tabernacles is coming. This one's not mine. So he waits. He also says it's not my time because he's in tune with what God does. We hear throughout Jesus saying, I only do what I see the Father doing. When Jesus converses with people, he often uses the scripture. And this is important. This is a clue to how Jesus is sort of walking in the spirit and walking with God and how he stays in tune with God. Right? Because at some point it's clear Jesus' time came and he went up to the festival and he met the people. <clears throat> so the question is, like, how, do, how does Jesus hear from God? You know, if we, if we kind of step back and look at, look, at what he, look at the way he lives. When we talk about prayer, and this is something we'll talk about, and it's, so it's just in my mind as I, even as I thought about this, Prayer, talking to God is, is, we say it's a conversation sometimes, and it's just, a, that's just a, not a full orb explanation of what it is. And prayer, if it's a conversation, it's a conversation that God starts, right? So people say, I want to hear from God. How do I hear from God? His word. His word is where you start hearing from God. That's where, that's where sort of prayer begins. You, you read his word, and you meditate on it, and you think about it, and then you begin to hear God speaking through his word and that sort of starts the conversation. And then like today when I pray the Lord's Prayer, sort of making it my own, I'm, I'm interacting with what God already said and making it my prayer and it informs what I do. And so I, I, as we think about Jesus, he's often going away for prayer. He's spending whole nights in prayer. Every big decision that he makes, it seems, is, is predicated on this, this time of prayer. He is filled with the scripture. He's, he's speaking God's word. He's just <clears throat> in tune with what God is, God is doing. And then it's clear that he's filled with the Holy Spirit. He's obedient to the Holy Spirit. So how do we follow God? In much the same way. God's word, 
God's spirit in prayer and the family of God, people around us that that give us guidance and, and help us understand those things. So it's clear that Jesus is in tune with what God is doing. In Romans chapter 12, 1, the scripture says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present yourselves, your bodies, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So Jesus is, is surrounded by these guys who are making perfect sense to him. Like, we wouldn't fault Jesus for saying, you know what, you guys are right, I'm going for it. Like, let's go. Get some flags, get some spears. Like, we're going to march in with everybody and, and it's on. If he would have marched in at the beginning of that festival, some commentators say everybody would have joined him. We've seen it happen throughout his story where they want to make him king. And he's saying, this is not God's plan yet, right? So he's in tune with what God is doing. And we see this idea of don't, not being conformed to the pattern of this world, but, renew, but by the renewing of our minds, uh, we're able to discern God's will. Uh, this, is, this is sort of the pressure that we feel. We, we come up against decisions that totally make sense for us from, from a, like a worldly perspective, but then there's something inside like God's kind of saying, hold on, hold on. Pray about this. Think about this. Talk to people about this. Like, try, to, try to discern what's going on here. You know, and, and I think in my own life, it's interesting, uh, as I get older and you kind of know yourself better, and, and uh, sometimes I'll, I'll think of a great idea. I'm like, you know what, this is, uh, this is a great idea for the church. You know, if we could just do things like this, and then as i process and I'm praying, I think to myself, I really think this is a good idea, and things that I've thought were good ideas in the past <clears throat> weren't necessarily so. Like, I don't really trust myself sometimes when I think of a good idea. I think, oh, this is, then I need to go run it by somebody, you know, like, hey, what do you think about this? Or I need to pray about, like, rather than just sort of stepping back and saying, all right, I'm just going to judge by appearances here. I'm just going to look at this and and make a decision based on my own flesh, my own wisdom. I'm able now to sort of step back and say, I'm going to pray about it a little bit before I make a decision. And that's important as we see Jesus understanding when it was the will of the Father to go up to this festival. So he doesn't sort of get conformed to, the, to what, what he should do as the Messiah, even though he is the Messiah. He knows who he is. He waits on God, and God sends him in the middle of the festival. So he's part of God's story from the beginning, and the Father's doing something so much bigger than his brothers can imagine, and even in our lives. He's doing so much bigger than we can imagine. <clears throat> and our part of that story is faith. We can trust his way, even when it doesn't necessarily meet our expectations or the world's. So my second point is we expect a savior to prove himself by telling us what we like to hear. Jesus rather tells us what we need to hear. So now he goes up to the festival. Everybody's talking about him. Where's Jesus at? What do you think about him? What do you th- well, you know, he's kind of a good guy, I think. You know, like, and everybody knows this sort of the power structure in the temple is against Jesus. They do not like him. It's like, don't say anything, you know, good about Jesus because these guys are kind of on a, you know, kind of high strung right now. Like, and for very good reason, these religious gatekeepers knew the prophecies. They understood 
that the Messiah was going to come, and they had all these theories about when and why he was going to come. And it, some, sometime in the, in the, you know, if you ever get a chance, an in-depth study of Israel's failures, one of the biggest things that they get in trouble for is forgetting about the Sabbath throughout history. So for them, like, we got to keep the Sabbath. If we just keep the Sabbath perfectly, and there's, there's you know, uh, concepts where they said if, if there's one day where all of Israel keeps the Sabbath perfectly, then the Messiah will come. Like, that's how important it was to these guys. So in these, in these arguments with Jesus, they're not just sort of like religious moralists, you know. I mean, that's bad enough, but they're religious moralists with like, a, like this really the big conviction that we're, we're protecting Israel in this way. Like, this is what we're, this is so important to us. And uh, so Jesus enters into this, this milieu, this mix of people who are kind of talking about him and he goes up into the temple and starts preaching, and the people once again are blown away by Jesus. How does this guy know so much? Because he's, he's not learned, okay? And it's, it's interesting how they thought of someone who's not learned. Uh, I got this quote, which, bear with me. I like it, though. So the rabbis say, if anyone has learned the scripture and the Mishnah, but has not served as a student of, of the learned, he's one of the people of the land, okay? That means... If you learn the scriptures and you learn the Mishnah, which is commentary on the scriptures, but you haven't learned from the right teacher, if you haven't been with the learned, you haven't gone to university, you haven't gone to Harvard or Stanford or whatever it might be, some big name school, right? <clears throat> then you're just a person. You're just a normal person, right? Because you don't have like the, the credibility, you don't have like PhD, MS, DIV, AS, whatever after your name, right? It doesn't matter. Secondly, if you learn scripture but not the Mishnah, you're uneducated. So just knowing the Bible but not all the teacher's commentaries on it, you're just uneducated. You're ignorant. But if you learn neither the scripture nor the Mishnah, the scripture says, I sowed the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of men and of cattle. I.e., you're just an animal. <laughs> like if you don't know the Bible or the teacher's teachings on it, you're an animal. So they had a very low opinion of someone that would stand up and try to teach for themselves because he doesn't have the credentials and he doesn't seem to be using the Mishnah. To use the Mishnah, you would say, Gamaliel says, this is what the scripture means. And some other guy, I forget all their names right now. Uh, who's my favorite one? Akiba. Rabbi Akiba says this. Um, that's just such a cool name for a rabbi. Uh, he's a real guy in history. Rabbi Akiba says this, and Gamaliel says this, and so-and-so says this, and, and they teach this way, you know. And so Jesus stands up and says, you've heard it said this. Here's what I say to you, <laughs> right? And people are like, wait, whoa, what a minute. What do you mean you say to us? What about Akiba, man? What about Gamaliel? What about so-and-so? What about Hoshua or whatever their names are, Right? You got to quote these guys to like give yourself some credibility and he's not doing it. And they're saying, they come to confront Jesus and say, hey, come on, let's, let's argue this out. Bring your teachers, we'll bring our teachers and we'll see who actually is, is the learned person here. What gives you the right to teach? And Jesus doesn't take the bait. He doesn't enter into their conversation. So they, they confront Jesus. They're surprised. So Jesus told them, my message is not my own. It comes from God. And this is, this is what Jesus tells them. This is, this is the verse. Anyone who wants to do the will of God will know whether my teaching is from God or is merely my own. So here's what's going on. We have this special ability, and I'll just, I'll just illustrate it for you, right? You guys have all, probably all been to a hospital at some point or another. Hospitals are huge. 
So many employees, right, wearing their gear for whatever reason. They wear the gear. They wear the hospital clothing of doctors and nurses, right? And uh, you walk by, like, you're going into the hospital or something. You kind of walk by, like, a side door, like a staff door or something. And there's, like, four or five nurses and a doctor with his lab coat on, all out there, like, smoking cigarettes and talking to one another. You guys have probably had this experience, right? It always trips me out. Why does it trip me out? that nurses and doctors are outside smoking cigarettes. Like, you know, well, you got to be 25 feet from the building. No. Uh, It's because they know that it's unhealthy for them, right? I think to myself, if there's anybody that knows smoking is bad for your health, it's doctors and nurses. So why does that trip us out? It's because we have this assumption in our society that if I just know something, it gives me the power to do it. Like, knowledge just makes me able to, like, we just need to teach these doctors that smoking is bad, and they'll stop, right? We just need to teach the kids about the dangers of marijuana, and they'll just stop. We need to teach people that heroin's bad for you, and, and oh, I didn't know that. Like, oh, wow, I'm going to stop. It's funny, right? It's funny because it's so unrealistic, but how, how much do we hold on to that? Like, that's what we want to hear. We want to hear Jesus say, you just have to know this stuff. But Jesus confronts these guys because they're saying, we know everything, bro. Where are you from? And Jesus says, if you want to know whether or not my teaching is from God, do the will of God. That's how you test whether or not my teaching works. Do it. Don't just know it. And that's our assumption. Like, well, I, you know, for me too, like, oh, I just know. I learned the Bible. I know all this, blah, blah, blah. I could just fake it and just, but yet all of my knowledge without application is not what Jesus is calling us to. There's a term in the scripture called that we has come to be translated as sound doctrine, right? You guys maybe heard these terms. They sound like granitized. They sound like carved in stone somewhere. Sound doctrine is what we want our church to, to have, you know? Of course we do. We want sound doctrine. The word sound comes from the field of health, oddly enough. Healthy. That's what it means. Like when you, when you describe someone as healthy, they're sound, right? Of a sound mind. That's kind of the idea there. So sound doctrine is, doctrine is to teach. That's what doctrine is, right? I'm telling you that. Maybe you didn't know. So doctrines are teachings. Doctrines are information that you teach people. So let's, let's take it back. Healthy teaching. That's what sound doctrine is. Healthy teaching. But it's not just healthy teaching. Like, oh, that was a good sermon. No, it's teaching that brings about health in the church. Not just, oh, that was great, a great word, you know, brother. I'm heading out to the tracks, you know, whatever. Going to the casino, like, whatever. You know, casinos aren't evil uh, entirely. But uh, you're just stupid if you think you're going to make money at the casino. Um, So healthy teaching is something that God intends the teaching to come into us and give us the power to live out what he's teaching us. And he gave us a family, he gave us his spirit, he gave us his word to enable us. It's not just the knowledge, it's not just you hear the Bible and you do it. No, there's a, there's a whole bunch of stuff wrapped up in that. And that's what Jesus is trying to tell these guys. If you want to know where I'm coming from, do the will of God. Then you'll know that what I'm saying is true. You'll know it's from God. So that's what we're after is healthy teaching. And this, 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 this 
message is repeated over and over and over again in scripture. And it's something that we've come to, in, even in this study of Jesus, we've, we've had this idea of meet Jesus, right? Like, you got to meet this guy. I was even listening to a podcast this week about uh, MMA, guys talking about fighting, right? And the one guy says, oh, I'm doing this type of yoga now. It's super awesome. And the other guy's like, oh, I love that kind of yoga, man. And then the one guy says, like the guy on the podcast goes, hey, uh, I just, you know, whenever I start doing something that I love, I just have to tell everyone, man. I just, I just become an evangelist for this thing. So I'm just telling everyone about this yoga style now. And I was, I'm listening to that thinking like, hmm, evangelist. He used the word evangelist, right? Like you had to make him say that word, God, like while I'm listening to the podcast. Like, do I love Jesus as much as this guy loves this brand of yoga? I don't think so, man. I don't have a podcast telling people about this yoga. Like, it was, it was a conviction to me. Like, am I that excited about telling people, come and meet Jesus? Like, you gotta, you gotta experience this guy. And, and this idea of like hearing and doing, it comes back to the reality of uh, Jonathan Edwards used this illustration that's famous, maybe you've heard it, and he talks about just the fact that you can study, you can have extensive knowledge about the chemistry of honey and the biology of honey and where honey comes from and the different types of honey, but until you taste it, you don't really know how sweet honey is. Until you taste it, you don't really know how sweet honey is. That's what Jesus is, is inviting these people, come and see taste and see that God is good, right? There's a scripture that says that somewhere. Um, Jesus is, it's an invitation to these guys. He doesn't enter into their little octagon of theological knowledge. He just says, if you guys want to know, do the will of God, and then come and follow me. So we have this brokenness in our, in our minds that, that knowledge itself is sufficient to bring about change in our lives. But yet we know that it's not because we observe it every single day and even in ourselves. And God is not calling us to just have the knowledge and then make ourselves do what we know is right. That's not why Jesus came. That's not the Savior that we should expect. So let's come back to Romans now, the scripture I read earlier. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This, I love this verse because when I was studying this verse, it's one of those times when you're studying scripture, I would encourage you all to do this. Like you get into the word and you start learning and you go through this process of discovery and then like the meaning of scripture just like, like pops out at you and you're like, ah, oh, that's so awesome. Testing, this word testing, it's a Greek word that basically comes from like the refining thing, but really the way we could translate that is test drive, okay? It's like you're going to go buy a car, what kind of car do you want? You could do all the research in the world, right? But you don't just buy it online yet, right? You go test it, drive it, and see if you really like this car. This is what is going on here. Don't let yourself be conformed to the pattern of this world. Be renewed like, let your mind be renewed, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is. So he's saying, test drive the will of God. Try it out, and you'll find that it's good and acceptable and perfect. It's awesome. 
You can, you can study this word. You find, it, you find it out. The guy says to Jesus, Jesus says, hey, come and follow me. He goes, ah, I got to go try out my new oxen. He uses that same word. I got to go test drive my oxen, <laughs> right? Make sure these guys are bulls or whatever. Make sure they can pull stuff. <clears throat> so Jesus is saying, guys, if you want to know it's true, test it out. Try it out. Try out God's will. And then you'll know that my teaching is true. So in Titus, the scripture makes this more clear and it sort of relates to what Jesus is saying here. Titus chapter two. He gave his life to free us from every kind of sin, to cleanse us and to make us his very own people, totally committed to doing good deeds. You must teach these things and encourage believers to do them. You have authority to correct them when necessary, so don't let anyone disregard what you say. This is Paul's instruction to Titus as a, as a new leader in Crete, in a church. Totally committed to doing good deeds. Teach believers and encourage the believers to do them. And he continues in chapter 3. But when God, our Savior, revealed his kindness and love, he saved us. Not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy, he washed away our sins, giving us new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Because of his grace, he made us right in his sight and gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. What was your part in all that? (laughs) God did all that for us. By faith, we get all of that from God. That's a lot of work that he's put in on us. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to insist on these teachings so that all who trust in God will devote themselves to doing good. These teachings are good and beneficial for everyone. Now listen to this. He says, do not get involved in foolish discussions about spiritual pedigrees or in quarrels and fights about obedience to Jewish laws. These things are useless and a waste of time. This is where Jesus finds himself, right in the middle of a quarrel about Jewish laws and spiritual pedigrees. There, this is, Jesus doesn't even give it the time of day. It's useless. It's a waste of time to enter into this argument with these guys. They, Jesus is saying the most important thing. Listen and do God's will. And you'll see. You'll see the truth of it. So he doesn't take the bait. He didn't come to tell us what we want to hear. He came to tell us what we need to hear. And my last point, Jesus proves himself by superseding our expectations. This has been true in my own life and people throughout history testify to this. I expected this from Jesus. I expected to be in Ecuador right now speaking Spanish better than I do right now. But I'm not. Here I am. Sometimes we can break the law like you can't just go up to somebody's car in the parking lot and just bash out the window. Right? But if you go up to their car and you see it's like 100 degrees outside and there's a baby sitting in there and you can't find any way into the car nobody's going to sweat you for breaking that window out right sometimes the law is superseded by something else like you can be driving down the freeway and just all of a sudden just stop in your lane and pull over that's most of the time dangerous and illegal but if there's a emergency vehicle flying up the road behind you it's okay that supersedes the normal laws of traffic at that point it just comes to my mind, my, my beloved brother-in-law. 
He's like a, just such a cool, unique person. And one morning, he was driving to college early on a crowded freeway, and he was late, and he was just probably barely paying attention. And then all of a sudden, all the cars just started getting out of his way. And he's like, oh, this is awesome. And he just floors it. So, so he's flying down the freeway for like a couple miles. And then he finally realizes that all these lights flashing in his mirrors is like eight state patrol vehicles right on his rear, like trying to get past him as he's like leading the way. And then so he's like, oh, shoot, and pulls over. I'm just like, dude, why would you assume, okay, that everyone's just getting out of your way because you're late to school? Like, seriously? I don't know. You know, we think differently, him and I. So sometimes you can break a law because something else supersedes that law. So now these guys are saying to Jesus, you break the Sabbath. He goes, okay, I did one miracle on the Sabbath and you guys are astonished. You guys are offended. But you break the law. You break the law every Sabbath because of the rules of circumcision. On the eighth day, a kid has to get circumcised. And if it's the eighth day and it's the Sabbath, you circumcise them and you break the law and you don't have any problem with it because you know that circumcision supersedes the law of the Sabbath. It has to be done to make somebody pure, to make them God's child. And I mean, he basically ends their argument at that point. They have no, there's no response they can give him. He just shuts them down. You guys do the same exact thing, but what he's doing is, is so awesome. He's inviting them again. He's helping them to understand what you do supersedes the law of Moses. And I, I made a whole, I made the guy's whole body better, not just one part, right? Circumcision to them is an improvement. So he said, I made the guy's whole body better. Jesus is, is reaching out to this guys, to these guys. He's, he's, he's saying this. And this is, a, this is a quote from a commentary. This gives a striking and important truth to the Sabbath controversy, which plays so large part in the synoptic gospels, but is never really explained in them. Jesus' attitude is not a sentimental liberalizing of a harsh and unpractical law, okay? Jesus is not just like, dude, chill, take it easy, man. Like, God's laid back. Nor is it the masterful dealing of an opponent of the law as such. He's not like a lawyer arguing his way. It's rather the accomplishment of the redemptive purpose of God towards which the law had pointed. And this is very important for us to understand. Here Jesus is saying to these guys, I supersede the law. Jesus accomplishes the redemptive purposes of God. Jesus is pointing to these teachers. He's pointing them to God's plan again and pleading with them to use right judgment. Judge with right judgment, or the NLT translates it. Look beneath the surface here. Don't just judge by appearances. You guys know what's going on. They don't want to admit that if he can heal somebody that he's the Messiah. They want to make it about the Sabbath. Jesus is saying, understand this. I am superseding the law, and there's an unexpected way to know God. It's me. I came to invite you into the relationship you were created for. I didn't come to deflate your expectations. I came to exceed your expectations. These guys follow the law. They do all the rules because they think it's in the law that they know God or that they're acceptable to God. And Jesus is saying, I'm replacing that. I'm how you know God. I'm the way to the Father. This is what God is doing in the Messiah. 
So examine your expectations of Jesus. We all have cultural pathologies that we bring in to our relationship with God. And that's what Jesus is trying to heal in us. These assumptions that, you know, I could just know the word and not do it, and I'm a Christian, right? We have a president like that. Do we really believe that all of a sudden you're just a Christian? That's all. I mean, praise God if you are. Are you, do, are you like, it doesn't quack like a duck though sometimes. Examine your expectations of Jesus. You know, I don't want to trash President Trump like just like everybody does. Trump's a jerk. Ah, everybody laughs. Just like so tired. But if you claim to be a Christian, I, and you know, I'll email him. Sorry. I, I keep thinking about this. Like, stop answering people back. Jesus didn't answer people back. He, he just left it to God, right? When someone says, Trump, you're an idiot, just hand it over to Jesus if you believe in him, if you really trust him. Let him deal with it, okay? Maybe CNN will have a hurricane in their office, you know, if they're the fake news that you claim that they are. <laughs> I don't know. Like, God will deal with all of this stuff, right? I'm just joking, right? You understand that? <clears throat> but, you know, it just irks me sometimes when people say, oh, all evangelicals voted for this guy, blah, blah, blah. It's like, yeah, study the numbers, not exactly. And he's not really acting like he says he, he should. It came to my mind because Caleb and I got an email from someone that was thinking about moving to our church and their litmus test for our church was, what do you think of Donald Trump? <laughs> I thought, what a refreshing question. That's awesome. <laughs> like, it's better than like, what's your eschatology or what do you think about Jeremiah's second wife? It's just like, what do you think about Donald Trump? Like, you understand, like your faith is, needs to act out in reality. That's good. Jesus isn't coming to meet our expectations. He's coming to correct them. The question for us is, are my expectations in line with his plan, informed by his word, his spirit, his church, or they are, are they a Christianized version of the American dream? Jesus isn't coming to make Israel great again. And Jesus isn't coming to make America great again. He's bringing the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is in charge. Jesus is the authority on earth. His kingdom rules in every country that it's a part of. It's everywhere in the world. We expect him to make our lives better. He makes them holy. We expect a lack of trouble, but we receive peace in the storm. We expect no sickness, but we receive comfort in our weakness. Jesus is not recruiting an affinity group, but making a family. Jesus accomplished what we need. We can trust in him and test out his will. It's good and pleasing and perfect. We can use right judgment to understand what he's saying. That is, listening to God in the word and in prayer and through our church and with our family. And that is to test out our faith. We get to test the water and see if God will not be there when we need him. That we can taste and see that God is good. Jesus wants you no matter where you are at in your, in your spiritual development. Jesus wants you to grow from where you're at. He wants you to grow in experiential knowledge of him and rest in that trust. We come to understand that although following Jesus might not be what we expect, it's really what we need. Let's pray. Jesus, I, I do pray for us this morning. I pray for our church. I pray for this family that you've collected and that you've used in this city. Lord, we pray for your help. 
Lord, we pray for your guidance. Lord, we pray for your spirit to change our hearts. We pray for growth in our lives. We pray, Lord, against, I pray, Lord, against the complacency in my own heart, in my own life. And I pray against spiritual complacency, Lord. I pray against letting our lives be poisoned by the American dream. Lord, help us to see your kingdom as that treasure in a field that so far outweighs any of the stuff that this culture promises, Lord. Help us to be able to lay down our lives, to love others as you loved us. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are true, that you call us to do God's will, that you enable us by your spirit to live out the life that you call us to. Lord, give us more of your spirit this morning, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.